Part One, Chapter Six of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A crowd filled the Tivoli, the old crowd that had seen daylight depart two months before, for this was the night of the sixtieth day, and opinion was divided as ever as to whether or not he would compass the achievement. At ten o'clock bets were still being made, though the odds rose, bet by bet, against his success. Down in her heart the Virgin believed he had failed, yet she made a bet of twenty ounces with Charlie Bates against forty ounces that daylight would arrive before midnight. She it was who heard the first yelps of the dogs. Listen, she cried, it's daylight. There was a general stampede for the door, but where the double storm doors were thrown wide open, the crowd fell back. They heard the eager whining of dogs, the snap of a dog whip, and the voice of daylight crying encouragement as the weary animals capped all they had done by dragging the sled in over the wooden floor. They came in with a rush, and with them rushed in the frost, a visible vapor of smoking white, through which their heads and backs showed as they strained in the harness, till they had all the seeming of swimming in a river. Behind them, at the gee pole, came daylight, hidden to the knees by the swirling frost through which he appeared to wade. He was the same old daylight, with all lean and tired-looking, and his black eyes were sparkling and flashing brighter than ever. His parka of cotton drill hooded him like a monk, and fell in straight lines to his knees, grimed and scorched by camp smoke and fire, the garment in itself told the story of his trip. A two-month's beard covered his face, and the beard, in turn, was matted with the ice of his breathing through the long seventy-mile run. His entry was spectacular, melodramatic, and he knew it. It was his life, and he was living it at the top of his bent. Among his fellows he was a great man, an Arctic hero. He was proud of the fact and it was a high moment for him, fresh from two thousand miles of trail, to come surging into the barroom, dog, sled, mail, Indian, paraphernalia, and all. He had performed one more exploit that would make the Yukon ring with his name, he, Burning Daylight, the king of travelers and dog-mushers. He experienced a thrill of surprise as the roar of welcome went up and as every familiar detail of the Tivoli greeted his vision, the long bar and the array of bottles, the gambling games, the big stove, the wear at the gold scales, the musicians, the men and women, the Virgin, Celia, Nellie, Dan MacDonald, Bettles, Billy Rawlins, Olaf Henderson, Doc Watson, all of them. It was just as he had left it, and in all seeming, it might well be the very day he had left. The sixty days of incessant travel through the white wilderness suddenly telescoped and had no existence in time. They were a moment, an incident. He had plunged out and into them through the wall of silence, and back through the wall of silence he had plunged, apparently, the next instant, and into the roar and turmoil of the Tivoli. A glance down at the sled with its canvas mailbags was necessary 
to reassure him of the reality of those sixty days and the two thousand miles over the ice. As in a dream, he shook the hands that were thrust out to him. He felt a vast exultation. Life was magnificent. He loved it all. A great sense of humanness and comradeship swept over him. These were all his, his own kind. It was immense, tremendous. He felt melting in the heart of him. He would have liked to shake hands with them all at once, to gather them to his breast in one mighty embrace. He drew a deep breath and cried, The winner pays, and I'm the winner, ain't I? Surge up, y'all malumoots, and sea washes, and name your poison. There's your D.A. mail, straight from Saltwater, and nose horn swoggling about it. Cast the lashings adrift, y'all, and wade into it. A dozen pair of hands were at the sled lashings when the young Libraj Indian, bending at the same task, suddenly and limply straightened up. In his eyes was a great surprise. He stared about him wildly, for the thing he was undergoing was new to him. He was profoundly struck by an unguessed limitation. He shook as with a palsy, and he gave at the knees, slowly sinking down, to fall suddenly across the sled, and to know the smashing blow of darkness across his consciousness. Exhaustion, said Daylight. Take him off and put him to bed, some of y'all. He's sure a good Indian. Daylight's right, was Doc Watson's verdict a moment later. The man's plumb tuckered out. The mail was taken charge of, the dogs driven away to quarters and fed, and Bettles struck up the peon of the sassafras root as they lined up against the long bar to drink and talk and collect their debts. A few minutes later, daylight was whirling around the dance floor, waltzing with the virgin. He had replaced his parka with his fur cap and blanket cloth coat, kicked off his frozen moccasins, and was dancing in his stocking feet. After wetting himself to the knees late that afternoon, he had run on without changing his footgear, and to the knees his long German socks were matted with ice. In the warmth of the room, it began to thaw and to break apart in clinging chunks. These chunks rattled together as his legs flew around, and every little while they fell clattering to the floor and were slipped upon by the other dancers. But everybody forgave Daylight, he who was one of the few that made the law in that far land, who set the ethical pace and by conduct gave the standard of right and wrong was nevertheless above the law. He was one of those rare and favored mortals who can do no wrong. What he did had to be right, whether others were permitted or not to do the same thing. Of course such mortals are so favored by virtue of the fact that they almost always do the right and do it in a finer and higher way than other men. So Daylight, an elder hero in that young land, and at the same time younger than most of them, moved as a creature apart, as a man above men, as a man who was greatly man and all man. And small wonder it was that the Virgin yielded herself to his arms, as they danced dance after dance, and was sick at heart at the knowledge that he found nothing in her more than a good friend 
and an excellent dancer. Small consolation it was to know that he had never loved any woman. She was sick with love of him, and he danced with her as he would dance with any woman, as he would dance with a man who was a good dancer, upon whose arm was tied a handkerchief to conventionalize him into a woman. One such man Daylight danced with that night. Among frontiersmen it has always been a test of endurance for one man to whirl another down, and when Ben Davis, the faro dealer, a gaudy bandana on his arm, got Daylight in a Virginia reel, the fun began. The reel broke up and all fell back to watch. Around and around the two men whirled, always in the one direction. Word was passed on into the big bar room, and bar and gambling tables were deserted. Everybody wanted to see, and they packed and jammed the dance room. The musicians played on and on, and on and on the two men whirled. Davis was skilled at the trick, and on the Yukon he had put many a strong man on his back. But after a few minutes it was clear that he, and not Daylight, was going. For a while longer they spun around, and then Daylight suddenly stood still, released his partner, and stepped back, reeling himself and fluttering his hands aimlessly, as if to support himself against the air. But Davis, a giddy smile of consternation on his face, gave sideways, turned in an attempt to recover balance, and pitched headlong to the floor, still reeling and staggering and clutching at the air with his hands. Daylight caught the nearest girl and started on in a waltz. Again he had done the big thing. Weary from two thousand miles over the ice, and a run that day of seventy miles, he had whirled a fresh man down, and that man, Ben Davis. Daylight loved the high places, and though few high places there were in his narrow experience, he had made a point of sitting in the highest he had ever glimpsed. The great world had never heard his name, but it was known far and wide in the vast silent north by whites and Indians and Eskimos, from Bering Sea to the passes, from the head reaches of the remotest rivers to the tundra shore of Point Barrow. Desire for mastery was strong in him, and it was all one, whether wrestling with the elements themselves, with men, or with luck in a gambling game. It was all a game, life and its affairs, and he was a gambler to the core. Risk and chance were meat and drink. True, it was not altogether blind, for he applied wit and skill and strength, but behind it all was the everlasting luck. The thing that at times turned on its votaries and crushed the wise, while it blessed the fools. Luck, the thing all men sought and dreamed to conquer, and so he. Deep in his life processes, life itself sang the siren song of its own majesty, ever a whisper and urgent, counseling him that he could achieve more than other men. Win out where they failed, ride to success where they perished. It was the urge of life healthy and strong, unaware of frailty and decay, drunken with sublime complacence, ego-mad, enchanted by its own mighty optimism. And ever in vaguest whisperings and clearest 
trumpet calls came the message that sometime, somewhere, somehow, he would run luck down, make himself the master of luck, and tie it and brand it as his own. When he played poker, the whisper was of four aces and royal flushes. When he prospected, it was of gold in the grass roots, gold on bedrock, gold all the way down. At the sharpest hazards of trail and river and famine, the message was that other men might die, but that he would pull through triumphant. It was the old, old lie of life, fooling itself, believing itself, immortal and indestructible, bound to achieve over other lives and win to its heart's desire. And so reversing at times, daylight waltzed off his dizziness and led the way to the bar. But a united protest went up. His theory that the winner paid was no longer to be tolerated. It was contrary to custom and common sense, and while it emphasized good fellowship, nevertheless, in the name of good fellowship, it must cease. The drinks were rightfully on Ben Davis, and Ben Davis must buy them. Furthermore, all drinks and general treats that Daylight was guilty of ought to be paid by the house, for Daylight brought much custom to it whenever he made a night. Bettles was the spokesman, and his argument, tersely and offensively vernacular, was unanimously applauded. Daylight grinned, stepped aside to the roulette table, and bought a stack of yellow chips. At the end of ten minutes, he weighed in at the scales, and two thousand dollars in gold dust was poured into his own and an extra sack. Luck, a mere flutter of luck, but it was his. Elation was added to elation. He was living, and the night was his. He turned upon his well-wishing critics. Now the winner sure does pay, he said, and they surrendered. There was no withstanding daylight when he vaulted on the back of life and rode it, bit it, and spurred. At one in the morning he saw Elijah Davis herding Henry Finn and Joe Hines, the lumberjack, toward the door. Daylight interfered. Where are y'all going, he demanded, attempting to draw them to the bar. Bed, Elijah Davis answered. He was a lean, tobacco-chewing New Englander, the one daring spirit in his family that had heard and answered the call of the West, shouting through the Mount Desert, back odd lots. Got to, Joe Hines added apologetically, we're mushing out in the morning. Daylight still detained them. Where to? What's the excitement? No excitement, Elijah explained. We're just a-going to play your hunch and tackle the upper country. Don't you want to come along? I sure do, Daylight affirmed. But the question had been put in fun, and Elijah ignored the acceptance. We're tackling the steward, he went on. Al Mayo told me he had seen some likely-looking bars first time he come down the steward, and we're going to sample them while the rivers froze. You listen, Daylight, and mark my words. The time's coming when winter diggings be all the go. There'll be men in them days that'll laugh at our summer stratchin' and ground wallerin'. At that time, winter mining was undreamed of on the Yukon. From the moss and grass, the land was frozen to bedrock, and frozen gravel, hard as granite, defied pick and shovel. 
In the summer the men stripped the earth down, as fast as the sun thawed it. Then was the time they did their mining. During the winter they freighted their provisions, went moose hunting, got all ready for the summer work, and then loafed the bleak dark months through in the big central camps, such as Circle City and Forty Mile. Winter diggin's sure comin', Daylight agreed. Wait till that big strike is made up river. Then you all see a new kind of mining. What's to prevent wood burning and sinking shafts and drifting along bedrock? Won't need the timber. That frozen muck and gravel stand the hell is froze, and its mill tails is turned to ice cream. Why, they'll be working pay streaks a hundred feet deep in them days it's coming. I'm sure going along with you all, Elijah. Elijah laughed, gathered his two partners up, and was making a second attempt to reach the door. Hold on, Daylight called. I sure mean it. The three men turned back suddenly upon him, in their faces, surprise, delight, and incredulity. Go on, you're fooling, said Finn, the other lumberjack, a quiet, steady Wisconsin man. There's my dogs and sled, Daylight answered. That'll make two teams and half the loads, though we'll all have to travel easy for a spell, for them dogs is sure tired. The three men were overjoyed, but still a trifle incredulous. Now look here, Joe Hines blurted out. None of your fool in daylight. We mean business. Will you come? Daylight extended his hand and shook. Then you'd best be getting to bed, Elijah advised. We're mushing out at six, and four hours sleep is none so long. Maybe we ought to lay over a day and let him rest up, Finn suggested. Daylight's pride was touched. No, you don't, he cried. We all start at six. What time do you all want to be called? Five? All right. I'll rouse you all out. You ought to have some sleep, Elijah counseled gravely. You can't go on forever. Daylight was tired, profoundly tired. Even his iron body acknowledged weariness. Every muscle was clamoring for bed and rest, was appalled at continuance of exertion and at thought of the trail again. All his physical protests welled up into his brain in a wave of revolt. But deeper down, scornful and defiant, was life itself, the essential fire of it, whispering that all Daylight's fellows were looking on, that now was the time to pile deed upon deed, to flaunt his strength in the face of strength. It was merely life whispering its ancient lies, and in league within it was whiskey, with all its consummate effrontery and vainglory. Maybe you all think I ain't weaned yet, Daylight demanded. Why, I ain't had a drink or a dance or seen a soul in two months. You all get to bed. I'll call you all at five. And for the rest of the night he danced on in his stocking feet. And at five in the morning, rapping thunderously on the door of his new partner's cabin, he could be heard singing the song that had given him his name. Burning daylight, y'all Stuart River hunchers, burning daylight, burning daylight, burning daylight. End of Part 1, Chapter 6